A 747 crashes into the ocean without any sign of an issue from the flight crew. How did an incident 22 years prior cause China Airlines 611 to break up over the ocean? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And today we have a guest, my professor, Dr. Chris Yakaki. Nice to be here. Cool. Nice to have you with us. This is uh, our first guest appearance. It'll be interesting to see how this goes. Also, uh, just so you guys know, we do have a baby in the room, as you just heard. Chris brought his wife and his child. Baby on the podcast. And me and Christy are both sick, so we might cough. You might hear a couple coughs. A lot. So... Just so don't you guys cough know on the advance. baby. Just don't cough on the baby. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> no, no baby's on the other side of the room. <laughs> okay, let's get started. What are we covering today, Nick? So today we are covering China Airlines Flight Six Eleven, which is a flight on May twenty fifth of two thousand two. It was a seven forty seven two hundred registered to the Republic of China as Bravo one eight two five five was the tail number. There were 206 passengers, 19 crew on board. The captain was Captain Ching Feng Yi. He was 52 years old. First officer was Yi Xiang Xie. He was 54 years old. And flight engineer Sen Guo Chao. And I don't actually know his age. The hours for these... Let me put it this way. The report doesn't make anything very clear about them. But it does say that they were fully rated on this airplane, the type... And fully rated to be flying it. That's good to hear. Yep. I was impressed with your pronunciation of those names. I gave it my best shot. <laughs> Impressive. I know. CI-611 was a scheduled flight from Chiang Kai-shem International Airport in Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan, to Cheklapkok International Airport in Hong Kong. It departed Taiwan at 3.07 p.m. local time. The takeoff and the initial climb were completely normal. You will see how quickly this story goes by, because it is unnervingly short, the information given prior to what happened. At 3.08, the flight was instructed to contact Taipei Approach, shortly after, this was a minute after takeoff. At 3.16, the approach controller instructed the flight to continue its climb to flight level 350, or 35,000 feet. At this point, the flight was over the Taiwan Strait, west of Taiwan. The flight crew's CI-611 acknowledged the climb instruction, and this was the last time that they would ever be heard from. At 3.28, radar contact was lost with CI-611 over the water, and at 6 p.m., wreckage was spotted floating in the Strait of Taiwan. Okay, <laughs> and nothing... Did they not see, like, radar of their altitude? Or is this just too early to see radar altitudes or anything It wasn't like that? too early. It was 2002. It was 2002. It was not that long ago. So, uh, why... Why was, like, nothing... They didn't give a, a, a mayday call or anything? Nope. There was no indication that anything was wrong before the incident. Not at all. Uh, did they find something? Did they ever find the cockpit and the flight data recorders? They did. And actually, relatively quickly. It didn't take them too long. They started recovering wreckage almost right away. Um, it was also determined very quickly that... All 225 people on board perished, 
in the incident. It happened fast, and there was no indication anything was wrong from the airplane. Then we jump right into the investigation, <laughs> I guess, because this literally happened so fast. That's all there was. I mean, there is not much more to be said about the incident. Really, there's not. There's not much in the report. There's not much that happened. There's really... If that's how strange this incident was there was no indication of anything wrong everything was totally normal they were just climbing to altitude leaving taipei and disappeared now can i ask can we uh, add some information on how old the plane was and yeah all those details so the plane was delivered to china airlines in november of seven or 1979 right so it was an old plane though. it was older it was 22 years old ish Somewhere yeah. around there. Average age for airplanes in the industry is 30 to 40 years. So it was a mid-aged airplane. Middle-aged. Middle-aged. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Middle-aged airplane. Middle-aged. It's still, you could say that it was on the upper end because the 747 had so many updates after the, the 200. 200, yeah. That so many airlines were already starting to retire or hand them over to cargo airlines. And in fact, this airplane was converted. It was partial, uh, it was what's called a combi. So that means it's part cabin for passengers and part cargo in the upper deck. I didn't know that. I don't think it said that in the... It doesn't make that very clear, but it was it was uh, modified only a handful of years before. Okay, cool. The investigation was carried out by several, several organizations, including the Civil Aeronautics Administration, the NTSB, the airline itself, and the Aviation Safety Council. The Aviation Safety Council of Taiwan is the one that actually published this report. Okay, so the Aviation Safety Council was because of where they landed, or? It's because of where it originated, yes, the waters where it, it ended up. Yeah, because the NTSB, it's because it was a 747. Yes, uh, Boeing was also involved. Um, China Airlines, because it's their aircraft. Right. Um, but also, I mean, all of these all these different entities, it's because there were citizens on board from oh, other countries. Oh, okay. So they get involved anytime that happens, generally. The investigation proved pretty tough because the data recordings were difficult to find, but they did find them relatively quick. The debris was scattered over a large area of water. So the investigators turned to air traffic control data to see what could be determined. They found that there was no strange calls made before the contact was lost. And radar, the radar data did show that in the last moment of radar contact, the airplane signal divided into multiple large pieces. That's not good. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Uh-oh. As records was recovered, it was numbered and organized to determine how the airplane would be picked back, would be pieced back together, how it broke apart, how the debris scattered, and where the separation originated. One of the very last parts to be pulled from the ocean, part 640, was a section of skin paneling with a repair doubler. It's like a, another piece of skin put over the already existing skin. And the investigators quickly determined this to be the source of the plane breakup. How did they know that? It had a different kind of fracture in the metal. Um, it was a straight edge, whereas all the others looked torn apart. It was the edge of all the pieces was at an angle. It wasn't just a straight cut looking thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and maybe I'm wrong about what a doubler is, but are, isn't that just to cover... When there's a crack somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, because I saw an episode of Air Disasters. It was not about this flight. It was about something for a much smaller plane. But the same thing happened 
where the fatigue of the the crack got to a point where the wing completely snapped off and the yeah, plane Yeah, that was uh, Chalk Airlines yep. in Miami. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of similar to that a little bit. You did mention the word fatigue, which is a very key word in this incident, which is mainly why we have Chris here. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because we are just covering metal fatigue in class, and me having five days of experience does not make me an expert by any means. <laughs> Well, I like how you said it was a, a piece or part number uh, 640, indicating there was at least 640 parts that they had to pull out. Oh, yeah. There's a lot highest, more than that. I think the highest number part that I saw was 658. I saw 738. Uh, okay. There's a lot. There's a, a lot, lot more than that, even. Yeah. So the plane broke up. It disintegrated. Before, yeah. So, But before it crashed, it broke up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It did not just crash into the ocean. It broke apart in the air. And then crashed. It originated at the tail. Oh, good. The thing that keeps the airplane flying for the most part. For those of you who don't know, um, a large chunk of flight control surfaces are on the tail of the plane. So if you lose the tail, you cannot fly the plane. These included the pitch and the yaw functions of the airplane. So the tail controls yaw. So that's like left to right like you'd have in a car. It It doesn't roll when it goes into the turn. It only turns left to right on a lateral plane. And then pitch, which is your vertical, which is pitch the, of the nose. you know pretty important part. Uh, extremely, yeah, that you know <laughs> keeps you in the air. Yep. I don't know. Now, can I ask? I mean, I, I get if you lose the tail, that's uh, catastrophic, and yeah. you won't be able to fly. I mean, if you lose one wing, can you still fly? No. Nope. Okay. No. I mean, is there any <laughs> it will other become part? Uncontrollable. Any other part you could lose? And you still can fly. lose an engine. You can yeah. lose an engine. Yeah. It you has can fly with just one engine. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. I know that. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> but as a matter of fact, in the incident we talk about before this one, um, the Garuda one five two, there was when it hit the tree, a nine feet of the right wing was removed, which when you talk about the wing is 30, 40 something feet long, nine feet doesn't sound like it'd be that impactful, but that is where the aileron is. So the airplane immediately became uncontrollable and would have crashed anyways, even if it hadn't been that close to the ground. You mean to the mountain? Yeah, that. (laughs) It wasn't the ground, it was a mountain. (laughs) Right. Terrain. Anywho, when the FDR and the CVR, or flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, were recovered, the data provided very little information to the investigators, and it was determined that power was cut to the flight recorders as the breakup occurred, and data afterward was not recorded. Which makes sense because it originated from the tail, which is where the black boxes are stored. Right. I didn't know that. I thought black boxes would have been up, up front with the pilots. You really would think so, yeah. but they're not. They're all the no, way at the they're... tail in almost every airplane. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I, it has something to do, because when a plane crashes, it usually... Pra- it, oh almost always crashes nose first. I think they thought about that so that you can recover the black boxes. It's more likely you would recover the black boxes with data still intact. Yeah, because then it wouldn't disintegrate for the most part because it's in the tail. The tail gets the less amount of impact if you go nose first. In theory. Yes. I'm sure there's... <laughs> I'm sure there's Not necessarily. other reasons. Right. In our first episode, most people who survived were sitting in the mid-cabin section. Yep, right in the middle. Yep. There, there's no great part of the plane to sit in. It's completely unpredictable per each crash. Yep. It depends on where it crashes, how, how it, it crashes, crashes, how hard it, it crashes. What if type it, of crash. Yeah. If <laughs> what it kind broke of plane? Yeah, yeah, it has been basically undetermined 
of what seat is safest to sit in. There yeah. basically isn't one. Yeah, I guess I have a question. I mean, has someone published a study on uh, on on if there is a safest part and determined that there is no like statistically significant safest part during a, a crash? I'm sure there is, but we'd have to look it up. Oh, yeah, yeah. we have to do a meta analysis on this. There you go. <laughs> you can take that on while I study for your test on Thursday. <laughs> The investigators eventually looked into many possibilities. Why would the airplane have broken up? There were nine possibilities given. <laughs> yeah, it's a list. Um, there were nine possibilities that they decided to look into. The first one being mid-air collision. But there were five radar stations that were actually tracking the flight when it went down. Jesus. Five radar stations, of which three were high-intensity uh, radars, so they track data really well and two are really low intensity and they would have seen another flight right like they would have seen them collide if that was the case right and so with all five they didn't see any other objects in the area of the airplane what exactly do you mean by intensity so it's kind of like in the last the last one where we talked about radar refresh rates high intensities the high intensities can see long distances they see very small objects and they refresh very quickly okay thank you Lower intensity ones won't see the smaller objects. They don't refresh as quickly. In any case, on none of the five was it determined that any other objects were in the area of the airplane when it went down. Another factor considered was engine failure or separation. All four engines, though, were recovered, some with the struts still attached. Engine fuse pins were still found attached and intact. The engine showed no sign that there was an uncontained failure of the engine, And all damage found to the engines was determined to be from impact forces once they hit the water. This meant to investigators that the engines did not cause the incident. They didn't separate or fail prior to the incident. Weather was considered, but no adverse weather was present at the time. It was very clear skies. And examination of the wreckage determined that there was no outside object that struck the airplane. And no lightning damage was present. What lightning caused the aircraft to break up like that not necessarily but it has happened (laughs) basically the only time that happens is if it somehow there's a fuel leak and then it gets struck by lightning oh for one and wouldn't it like explode then yes and if it doesn't have proper protection which almost every airplane even by the point of this incident had the proper protection from lightning strikes to prevent such an incident Tensions in the area, and of course, several other incidents prior to this, led investigators to look into explosive devices being on the aircraft. Many people believed and speculated that a bomb may have been present on the plane due to the conflicts in that area. There was a small puncture also found on the bottom of item 738, with a spike tooth feature similar to a puncture found on TWA 800, but in both cases was determined to be caused by a lower order of events from the break of the aircraft. So in other words, it was determined that this may have been caused by flying debris after the breakup and may have been caused after the initial breakup itself as part of the breakup. You guys look like you had a collective groan when you mentioned that. And that jumps into the next point because, of course, the next thing they looked at was the center fuel tank having been a factor in TWA 800 as well. Ah! <laughs> okay. Ah. So, to quickly summarize what happened with TWA 800, it was another 747 that exploded over Long Island, and it was determined that because they were sitting on the tarmac with the AC running in the plane, 
it vaporized the fuel, so when they took off, it exploded. Because the AC unit was right above where the center fuel tank was, so it heated up. And because it was heating up vapors, it caused the airplane to explode. But there's this huge conspiracy behind it, because people on Long Island swear up and down that they saw a missile hit it. Which isn't true, because they reconstructed the entire plane and found out that was not the case. But we will not conspiracize on that today. No, no. <laughs> That's too much for today. Too much. <laughs> That's why there was the collective, uh Right. So a fuel tank explosion was considered in this incident. TWA 800 in 1996 led investigators to look very closely at the center fuel tank for overpressure. However, the wreckage recovery efforts found that the center fuel tank was intact at the time of the impact with water. They did find that one of the beams was collapsed inward, and they decided to look to see if this could have been from overpressure, but they determined that there was no possible way that beam could have collapsed inward on the fuel tank from a possible overpressure. Yeah, no, that would have happened from impact. Right, and that's what they determined. Another factor they looked at was cargo doors opening. Another known issue. Yep, that happened on the yeah. DC-10s quite a, quite, quite a few times that caused a major, major bad reputation on the DC-10. Uh, the examination of the cargo doors, however, showed that they were all in the closed, and they remained intact until impact. So all the doors were closed. Did they? Okay, I want to know this, because I think it was a 7, yes, it was a 747 that had this issue going to New Zealand from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, did it actually have the latch that came in and pressurized, or did it have the latch where it opened out? It. I believe it had the, the one that... Uh, actually grabbed a hold of it and closed yeah. it and held it shut. Okay. Because this was an updated airplane and because it had the updated above cargo hold as well, all of these doors were intact and relatively modern. Okay. Then they looked at cabin overpressure. And they looked at this because when they recovered pieces of the cockpit, they found that some of the switches for the pressurization system were appeared to be in strange positions, like higher than they should be for the altitude that they were currently at, point of destruction. They believe that this could have caused the cabin to be overpressurized, and it may have just exploded. However, it was determined that the switches were actually likely moved due to impact forces with the water. I didn't even know that was a thing. That sounds like the most uncomfortable kind of death imaginable. Could you yep. imagine, like, your head just wanting to explode well, from and, pressure? And more than likely, they would have noticed something because there probably would have been... The cabin crew would have been saying something on the cockpit voice recorder. They probably would have been complaining of pressure in the ear things of that sort, and they probably would have heard more noises of the airplane creaking from pressure, overpressurization as well. I mean, can I ask a question? How pressurized can an airplane get? So most airplanes generally hold 8,000 feet yeah. of cabin altitude yeah. when they're at full cruising altitude. They can get much higher, but they generally don't. These days, um, some of the newer airplanes... wouldn't that be uh, lower? Yes. Well, <laughs> yes. But... Some airplanes these days are pressurized to 6,000 as well. So some are pressurized to six or 4,000, depending on the type of airplane. But 787s, for example, pressurized to 6,000 to make it a little bit more comfortable experience for everybody. I mean, but if if even if you're over-pressurized by, you know, acting like you're at, you know, 4,000 or 6,000 feet compared to 8,000 feet, how big how big of a danger is that? I guess that's a, it's a great pressurized vessel problem. Yes, it is. <laughs> I didn't even know that was an issue. Yes, it can cause many problems. I mean, obviously. <laughs> I mean, the airplanes are built to expand and contract continuously from 
from each one of those pressurizations and depressurizations. But still, there's only a certain amount they can take, and they're rated for a certain amount. You overpressurize, and that it's going to start causing cracks and fractures. And... I have a feeling that Chris is planning a problem for our final exam now. It sounds like a great problem. <laughs> <laughs> the dado panels were extracted from the wreckage, and the dado panels are the panels at the lower side of the cabin at where the passengers sit, and they open and close to make sure that pressure between the cargo hold and the upper section of the airplane, where the passengers are sitting, is maintained within a certain range so that one section isn't a higher pressure than the other. Because if an airplane does have a structural failure and the pressure is changing somewhere, then those dado panels will open to prevent the floor of the passenger cabin from falling, like they did in the DC-10 during the first few incidents. So that was one of the first things that they had looked at when they suspected any kind of depressurization. They looked at these panels to see if any were open, and a few of them were. Of the 65 panels, I think they said there was like 14 or 15 they found that were open. And that means that there was, and they were all found toward the rear of the airplane, the ones that were open, which meant that it was near the tail. Those ones being near the tail being open said that basically showed that there was a pressure difference between the two parts of the cabin and that it was acting to try to keep the cabin floor from falling. But investigators still didn't rule out an explosion on the plane. So they looked at hazardous cargo or dangerous goods in the airplane. They looked through the manifest of all the items very carefully that were known to be on the airplane. And there were no known hazardous or dangerous goods on board CI-611. Further examination of the victim's remains and the wreckage pieces found no chemical substances and no evidence of an internal explosion. So, finally, they looked at a structural failure of the airplane. At this point, the investigators looked at the flight data recorder prior to the power loss, and it showed that there was a slow acceleration of lateral and vertical parameters of the airplane, which was seen on previous flights in an oscillation pattern, and is very strange. This is a very strange abnormal thing, and it usually points to something being abnormal with the structure of the airplane. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. February 7th of 1980. This airplane had a tail strike incident on landing in Hong Kong. Fun fact, tail strike means the tail hits the ground. Yes. I did not know that. Now I do. <laughs> now I, you do. I believe you would have said the tail strikes the ground. Yes, the tail <laughs> strikes. It strikes the Of ground. the ground. Which is why it's called a tail strike. Yes. So this means while they were flaring, in other words, they were pulling the nose up for a soft landing on the main gear first into the nose gear, they over-rotated the airplane, pulling the nose up too far, striking the tail on touchdown. They were notified by ATC that there were sparks seen flying from underneath the airplane on touchdown, which is good fun. <laughs> good fun. Quite a show. I'm yes. Sure. <laughs> this tail strike left some pretty deep gouges and abrasions in the skin of the aft fuselage. The plane was then ferried back to Taiwan to be repaired. A temporary repair was 
finished on February 8th, the day after the incident, with the commitment to perform a more permanent repair within four months. In situations like this, the permanent repair instructions per Boeing's structural repair manual included cutting out the affected section, replacing it, and using a doubler or a second skin of sorts that was significantly larger, I think it's like 30% larger or something like that, than the affected region. The repair logbook indicated that the permanent repair was performed between May 23rd and 26th per the structural repair manual. So why did the failure happen? As it turns out, the repair actually wasn't done the way they said it was. Let me guess. They just put the doubler on without actually cutting out the section that got hit. So they sanded down the gouges so they weren't as prominent. And then they put the doubler on. And the doubler wasn't 30% larger. It just barely covered the gouges. Why do they always try to cut corners? I don't understand. It never turns out right. They'll wait for, you know, 20 years for something to happen. But why? Why? Because planes only make money while they're flying. Yes, I realize that. And However, so it would have been down for the count much longer than three or four days. Ah. <laughs> which cost 225 lives. These gouges eventually, over the course of 20 years, caused cracks that eventually propagated. Which Chris will get into. Yep. I guess the question is, uh, do we wanna, have we revealed then the problem? Yeah, it's the the fact that those gouges turned into cracks, which I'm assuming overrode the doubler, eventually ripping off the tail. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So when metal fatigues, at some point, it just forms a giant crack. There's no warning or anything like that. And so it cracked all the way around the fuselage, which is has a smaller circumference towards the back. And so the entire tail ripped off the plane. And when that happened, the structural integrity of the plane was compromised, and so the forces of just the air blowing around them at hundreds of miles per hour just disintegrated the plane. Yeah, so I guess we could take a second to talk about fatigue, right? So we said that word fatigue. And, uh, you know, I think we just, it was funny, the timing of this couldn't be better. We just talked about this in class the other day, but uh, fatigue is a term that that we use in, I'll say, failure, all right, When, when things break. And it was originally coined, I think, somewhere in the 1830s, if you go way back to, you know, when it was first published. And it's kind of a weird choice of words to describe, I'll say, material and and material behavior. Uh, Originally, when they saw the uh, metals that were loaded over and over again, they'll call that cyclic loading, uh, they'd find out that sometimes they'd break. And uh, they hypothesized back in the day that the material had lost the will to handle stress. I know it sounds like, <laughs> sounds somewhat ridiculous, right? And I think I made the joke. It was, it was like the, it's a terrible explanation. It's like in episode three when they say she has lost the will to live. You know, it's like the material has lost the will to bear stress. Uh, but that's kind of w- where that term originates. They thought maybe the, the material was just getting tired and, and gave up. Um, now, that's not actually what's happening. Uh, fatigues are definitely a much more, I say, a scientific mechanism of what's going on, and it's not just the material getting tired. Um, and I always love the definition of fatigue. Uh, there's not many times I read the definition of, I just say, engineering terms or terminology, and I think that's just a that's just a memorable quote. You know, that normally doesn't <laughs> happen. You know, uh, uh, you know, you think, oh my god, this this stuff is really boring. But I remember uh, one time when I was studying up on fatigue. Uh, I, I saw a, a pairing of words, and, and it'll be paired up differently 
different ways when, when you read about it, but it usually has something along the lines of being insidious form of failure. And I'm like, wow, those are some <laughs> strong words. Insidious form of failure uh, that happens usually with no obvious warning signs. Um, it just kind of happens sudden and unexpectedly after you know someone has been using a, a material or in this case flying a plane um, you know, repeatedly after after many many uses, and I think this case it was 22 years uh, is when it finally uh, uh, fractured, which to... is tens of thousands of flight cycles. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Nick, uh, how how many how many flights would that be? You think? Jeez, over <laughs> yeah, over 22 years. I mean, you think this airplane was mostly used on shorter routes, anyways? I mean, it was probably doing four, five, six flights a day with different flight crews was maintaining its relatively short flight routes. I mean, it was being used, yeah, tens, I mean, probably by that point, 20 or 30,000 flight cycles. Yeah, and the the crazy thing with, with fatigue that I think makes it so, I'll say catastrophic when people talk about it, is that you, you get a lot of confidence in what's being loaded cyclically. And so in this case... Uh, the plane had a 22-year history of of, of working, of flying, right? Yeah. And, uh, and no problems, right? And uh, it, it, fatigue happens, as they say, sudden, catastrophic, no signs of warning. Uh, it can work, you know, uh, 22 years in a row, or, or you know, 30,000 flights in a row, and then that last one, uh, it'll just it'll just happen um, almost, as you could say, instantaneously. And so, uh, yeah, I, I like to joke in, in the class. This is the example I use a lot. Is you know, every time you sit down on your chair, uh, be afraid, be very afraid because you've built up a lot of confidence that your chair is going to hold you. But if it was going to fatigue uh, and fracture, um, it'll just happen. And so, you know, that you know, hundred thousand times you, you sit your butt down, you're going to fall. Uh, and now, now, coincidentally, funny, I, I brought this up too. Uh, I was waiting in line for a burrito at Cadoba the other day and a young man sat down in the chair and literally it just broke. <laughs> snapped, <laughs> fell on his butt. And I was like, Wow, I've been I've been using this example for years, thinking, oh, there's, you know, I, I kind of say it in jest, thinking, oh, it'll, it'll never, it probably won't ever happen. Uh, and then I saw it happen right in front of my eyes, and I, I was like, I don't know if I caused that to have somehow to willed the universe to happen, but um, that's just kind of a, a little background on fatigue, and and I'll I'll talk a little bit about why that's so, I'll say, kind of nasty or, or or insidious. Um, fatigue happens often in I'll say ductile materials, and so in this case. You know, what is a plane primarily made out of, especially a, a plane that was you know, built in 1979? Aluminum. Aluminum. Right, good old aluminum. So definitely a ductile material. And the thing about it is uh, a crack will kind of start or propagate oftentimes even if there are no defects, right? And so it's kind of one of the things, if you use a piece of aluminum <laughs> enough, uh, eventually a crack will form. Uh, now, in this case, it didn't help that the tail strike happened, right? They scratched right. the surface, it gouged it out. And so, uh, you know, I'd say nine times out of 10, and, and don't hold me to that number specifically, but if there is a, a scratch or, or they could say a, a stress riser, could be a nick, it could be a scratch, it could even be a hole, uh, could be maybe a defect in the aluminum, you know, whatever, I'd say, you know, uh, creating that aluminum panel, if there was some kind of defect in the molten aluminum, uh, that it could start from there. But um, in this case, like a, a scratch is definitely going to be a stress riser. And when you're using it over and over and over again, eventually something's going to form. If I take a step back, uh, the thing that kind of makes fatigue really problematic on all fronts of cyclic loading is that it can start 
really tiny, tinyly, tinyly. Is that? I think that's my scientific. <laughs> term. It could, it's it's an excellent scientific yeah. term. I could say it could start on even I say the uh, you know nanoscopic scale, if you will. Um, if you zoomed into a piece of metal all the way down to the kind of atomic scale where the atoms are kind of put together, it only takes uh, one small area of the material. Now, typically we call those crystals or grains. Aluminum's made up of you know. You know hundreds of thousands, if not millions. It depends on how big of a sample you're looking at, but many of these micron or, you know, uh, 50 micron size grains or crystals that are all kind of jam-packed together. And in just one of those crystals, if you zoomed in, there could be one area where there's just kind of some unfavorable orientation or some unfavorable arrangement of atoms. And the problem is, you know, how many atoms do you have in an airplane? No. <laughs> yeah. Trillions, yeah, exactly. yeah, whatever. You have so many. And so uh, it, all it takes is just kind of one unfavorable spot that you're probably going to have because you know it's just kind of so random, right? You know, statistically, there's going to be one one area of a couple atoms that are unfavorably oriented, and and uh, there's a little bit of I'll say a hiccup in the crystal and structure of all those atoms. So we'll call that a, a dislocation. It just means it's not oriented perfectly, and those dislocations that kind of bind up forms a little thing called a a slip band, and I, we don't have to go into that, but it basically just means that this one kind of area that's unfavorably oriented and has some unfavorable arrangement of atoms will start a very, kind of, I'll say, nanoscopic crack. And then with repeated loading, that crack will slowly start to grow and slowly start to grow. And it can happen sometimes on the surface, it can happen sometimes in, in the middle of a part, but in either case, when that crack, uh, you could say, initiates or you know forms at that small area, usually that means then that material, or in this case, that airplane's time is kind of like it's on a, a ticking you know, time bomb or time clock, if you will. And uh, now in this case, the thing that accelerated it, you know, I mean, they design airplanes to kind of, uh, you know, hopefully not form cracks too quickly. Um, you know, there's a lot of engineering that, that goes around it, and they call it a, um, I guess, a damage-tolerant design, if you will, in that what they want to do is even if a crack does form in some aluminum, that it doesn't break right away. All right, so so even if you know you have, they know engineers know you're going to have an unfavorably oriented you know piece in your in your atomic structure that may form a crack and may propagate, and they design these you know, airplanes such that uh, you should be able to spot, inspect, you know, see that crack, and then actually then address it at a, at a future time before this catastrophic event happens. Um, now with the tail strike, you know you scratch the surface, and that's definitely going to be I'll say unfavorably, uh, an unfavorable area. There's some damage. There's going to be high stresses there, um, and you definitely are going to initiate cracks from that area. But it sounds like they put on a plate over top of it, and that plate, you know, is supposed to relieve the stress from that area of cracks, but uh, didn't do such a good job. And, and, and Christy, you said that it wasn't even big enough. Didn't cover all the scratches. So it just covered the scratches, whereas Boeing's repair manual dictates that it should be larger than the affected region. And they were supposed to remove, completely remove that section and replace it with new skin and then put the doubler over it. And here's what gets interesting. So they did the work. They did it improperly. Records were barely kept of that, even. Um, and as a matter of fact, they were not readily made available to investigators, the records of that repair. We have a picture of how in-depth they went in their records with the repair that was performed. And it's, <laughs> it's literally just a few lines saying 
this is what happened, here's the repair. Right. Records were not kept very well, and also were not very available. They were very incomplete. They didn't follow the airline's procedures. They didn't follow Boeing's procedures. They didn't follow anybody's procedures. They were supposed to do an ongoing check of this airplane for corrosion, for structural problems, for known fatigues. I remember my other question, because I did have another question. Do either of you know, and I'm guessing this is no from what you just told me, Okay. but did they ever remove the doubler and check the scratches in the 20 years that the aircraft So that's was what flying? I'm getting into. Okay. <laughs> they did not. And further, they checked the airplane in 1993. They were supposed to check it again in 1997. They put it off for 13 months. So another year and a month before they did their four-year inspection again of corrosion. And this meant that they weren't doing it on cycle as usual. They were doing this because they were following Boeing's procedures for checking the airplane per flight hours, but they weren't doing this in the other recommendation. So you're supposed to do it either one or the other, whichever comes first, either the yearly or the number of flight cycles. Well, the airplane had been reduced by a certain number of hours per year, because the airplane was getting older. So it was being used typically on smaller routes. It wasn't being used as often. It wasn't being flown as far or as often. And so they were using that, basically, as an excuse to say, well, we did it at the right number of hours. And they went, yeah, but you didn't. The investors said, yeah, but you didn't do it when you were supposed to do it at the four-year cycle. So they weren't checking it as often. They didn't check the panel. At least records didn't say they did. And... If they had done it in 1997, even when they did do it 13 months later, they should have seen that the cracks had stretched beyond the doubler. Not only had they stretched beyond the doubler, the crack was estimated to have been 72 inches at the time of the incident. Yeah, so that's that's kind what? of an interesting thing with, uh, I'll say, this damage-tolerant design. Uh, normally, I think if, if, if a normal person were to see that there's, hey, there's a, a crack in my airplane, right? yeah. <laughs> the fuselage, the wing, you kind of look out and say, holy crap, I see a, a crack. We need to land immediately. <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably would still think that. But, you know, they design these things in such a way that they know that cracks can exist and it will still function, you know, uh, perfectly fine. Now, in this right. case, you know, you got this doubler plate on there and and it's kind of hiding it, right? You know, if you think about it, it's hiding what's going on underneath. Right. And I mean, my God, 72 inches. That's, uh, I think that's taller than me. Well, and it expanded past the doubler. Like at that point, right. they knew it had been gouged. Right. So then it was like, oh, we should probably check that and like fix it. <laughs> and it managed to expand past the doubler for a couple of reasons. One, it went unchecked regularly. Two, it was repaired improperly to begin with, so the doubler didn't do its job. It did for a long enough time to keep the airplane flying, but over 22 years, they had the time, the opportunities to find it and repair it again, do it properly. Correctly fix it. The airline, however, of course, said that they had followed procedures to do the 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 inspection and do the... Uh, repair correctly but they didn't obviously by the way i have the picture this is how short that record is that they repaired it that looks like what about five lines of text maybe yeah short lines pointed. yeah they're bullet pointed short yeah, bullet lines of text. Yeah, yeah yeah sentence fragments really yeah. exactly and one more kind of fun fact about being able to see 
the crack. One of the metallurgists, when he was inspecting part 640, noticed that there were these weird dark brown streaks right. around the crack. And he thought it smelled a little weird. So he picked it up and smelled it. It was nicotine. Nicotine? Mm-hmm. Which nicotine... Smoking had been banned from planes starting in, like, 1995. So air was escaping the cabin of the plane through this crack. How did they not years. have a depressure? I guess it was too small to have a depressurization. It was too small to have an entire depressurization. However, but it was just waiting to happen. However, the oscillations in the previous two flights, as well as that one in the lateral and the vertical parameters of the airplane, so in other words, your pitch and mm-hmm. your and your roll, having those accelerations, the oscillations showed that there was something strange happening to the structure of the airplane. Yeah, I mean, you have a you know a seventy-two inch long crack running through the. Uh, uh, I don't know if you call it fuselage yeah, or whatever fuselage. you want yeah. to call it. Um, yeah, I get my terms right. Um, yep. Yeah, that's definitely going to you know uh, screw up any kind of resonance frequencies. And I'm sure Christy would love to talk about vibrations um, and and that class you took. <laughs> mm, <laughs> no, let's no, not. No comment. <laughs> yeah, they so they noticed the the brown, and actually because of that, it was determined that if they had even done uh, just a basic visual inspection, they should have seen. Those alone, those markings, and thought that that was out of place. Because because of when smoking was banned, you know that there was at least seven years between those nicotine streaks forming and the incident. Right. Which means that crack was there for at least seven years. It's been there for eons. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a little bit <laughs> little bit. And, and when you think of, uh, I'll say, uh, so one part of fatigue is you got to initiate a crack. And so in this case... You have a scratch. It's an area of high stress. That's where the crack is going to start or initiate or form, however you want to say it. Uh, and then the next step is, I'll say, propagation, crack propagation. And so in this case, a crack doesn't grow, typically doesn't grow extremely quickly. It might only grow by, I'll say, a few atoms, you know, a handful of atoms each time. And so, yeah, you may think, what is the distance of, you know, I'll just say like one nanometer. It, it's not very far. But, you know, how many cycles does it take to get from, you know, one or 10 nanometers to, in this case, you say 72 inches. Now, I know I'm I'm switching units up, but you can see it would take a long time. It's hard to know when exactly that crack maybe could have been seen even visually by by the naked eye. But just the fact that they grow very slowly and that's kind of all goes into that insidious catastrophic failure without warning because it does grow, you know, just methodically and slowly, but over 22 years. Uh, and I don't know if it was there for the entire 22 years, but so, for many years during that, it's just slowly growing after each cycle by, um, you know, could be only, you know, 10 nanometers e- each flight. It just grows just a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Right. And we discussed that, too, with our first episode with the fan disc. And that was actually not, it It was the inconsistency within what the impurity. metals were yeah, making. Yeah, it was yeah. a metal impurity, which yeah. I also consulted Dr. Y on. Yep. But that's why I was talking about earlier when they knew it was that part because it was a straight edge. When metal fatigues, because it grows so slowly, that crack, it grows at a in a straight plane. Whereas when something is just ripped apart in metal, the weakest point is when it shears and that's at 45 degrees. So at all the other disintegrated parts, basically, where everything else fell apart, it was all, all the pieces were severed at a 45 degree angle, but this one was at a flat 90. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure also if you'd look at the, 
maybe the the surfaces of those uh, parts that were let's say it's overloaded that you know once a crack gets to a certain spot uh we there's two things will happen the crack itself is usually very smooth and you can say it's perpendicular to the, okay. the stress or how it's growing but uh, that plane is very smooth and somewhat i'll say orthogonal to whatever way it's loaded it's just a fancy way of saying perpendicular uh, but for a ductile material such as aluminum ductile just means it usually can uh, you know experience a, a large amount of deformation before it, it fractures into two pieces and so Typically, those surfaces, uh, when that happens, will be, as Christy said, at 45 degrees, and they'll typically be rougher. They'll typically have some permanent deformation. So what I mean by that is um, a brittle deformation or a, a brittle fracture, it's like if you drop a vase, you know, you, you, if you knock over your, your mother's vase, you could glue it back together because chances are it was very brittle, and just some super glue and putting it back together, it's like putting Humpty Dumpty back together, it would, it would look like the original shape. Um, but for ductile materials like aluminum, that typically does not happen. If it's, if you kind of rip rip a piece of aluminum apart, uh, you know you could try to super glue it back together, but it's not going to look like the original part whatsoever. So it's kind of a nice dead giveaway. Um, yeah, that might be a morbid uh, a pun <laughs> that I did there, but a giveaway that when you're looking at uh, how the metal uh, kind of fractured, or when I say fractured, just means you know breaking apart into one or two or more actually two or more pieces. Uh, when you see something in a ductile material like aluminum being really smooth and kind of not being at 45 degrees, looking like you could just almost glue it back together to form the original shape. Uh, that's just a, a, a giveaway that it was fatigue. Right. And sure enough, I mean, the airplane was split in a perfect circle. Any comments, Miranda? I just don't. I. This is, what, our seventh episode now, right? Yep. And we've covered at least two other episodes where they didn't do proper maintenance on what they were supposed to and because they didn't do that people died so in this case versus some of the other ones though this maintenance really was flawed some of the other ones it wasn't necessarily the maintenance that was flawed it was the procedures given weren't proper for the the maintenance that needed to be done and that's that's not the mechanics fault in this case the mechanics weren't recording their work properly and they weren't following full procedures that said with this incident the crack was obviously what caused the separation but the report has no probable cause yeah this report was a mess for this incident first off this report was 700 pages. Yeah. All of the other reports we've worked on, I think the longest one was 300. Yep. The shortest was like 44. Right. This was obnoxious to go through. It was. And it's organized, to me, it was organized poorly for reading because you had to go back and forth through the different sections, through the two volumes. The figures were not where they were mentioned. You had to flip to them separately. Right. So that said, the probable cause essentially was undetermined. The findings, however, there were many of them, and they were broken into three sections, but I've summed up to the best of my ability what they were. And the first section was findings leading to the probable cause. So that's the closest thing they have to a probable cause on this report. They said that based on the CVR, the cockpit voice recorder, and the FDR, the flight data recorder, the radar data, and the data panel positions... The wreckage distribution and the wreckage examinations, the in-flight breakup of CI-611 was highly likely due to a structural failure in the aft lower lobe of the fuselage. 
The tail strike on February 7th of 1980 was temporarily repaired and then improperly permanently repaired. They found that the evidence of fatigue damage was found in the lower fuselage section under the repair doubler near its edge and outside of the row of securing rivets, in other words, beyond the doubler. They found that maintenance checks did not detect the improper repair from 1980, but timing of the propagation of the fatigue cracks could not be determined, so they may not have been as obvious or as easily detectable as you might think. So, in other words, they may have been visible beyond the doubler, but only with like a close-up look at it. And so if they were just inspecting from the ground looking at it, or if they were inspecting even somewhat close up, they probably, they might not have noticed because getting to that final 72 inches may have been in just the last like two, three flights. It may have propagated a lot further in a very short amount of time. They found that first corrosion prevention and control program or CPCP inspection of the aircraft was in November of 1993 and was to be conducted every four years. However, the airline completed the next inspection in December of 1998, or 13 months overdue, because they were tracking by flight hours instead of dates, and that aircraft had reduced usage during that time. They found that according to the maintenance records, starting in November of 1997, the aircraft had a total of 29 CPCP inspection items that were not accomplished in accordance with the airline and Boeing aging 747 requirements, and audits of the airline did not catch these either. So in other words, there were 29 other inspection items that should have been looked at, not just that fatigue crack, on the aging program, or this CPCP inspection, in order to determine if there's any corrosion, if there was any problems with fatigue, any problems with the airplane structure. 29 items since 1997 that they did not look at. So to use Chris's words, it very much was a ticking time bomb. It was. They did notice that in photographs of the repair doubler taken in November 2001, that showed that there was staining around the cracks, which was indicative of a possible hidden structural failure behind the doubler. They found that the airline did not accurately record some or, or some early maintenance activities, and records were either incomplete or not found at all. They found that except for the last sound spectrum on the CVR, which is 130 milliseconds, there were no indications on the recording of an issue at all. So that when they listened to the CVR, they didn't hear the crew notice anything, they didn't hear anything strange at all before the incident, and then there was a little 130 millisecond, little tiny piece of the CVR right before the power was cut to it, where there was a sound, and that sound is presumed to be the airplane falling apart. Nice. Yep. Analysis of the last 130 second milliseconds of the CVR, as well as the power being cut to both recorders simultaneously, indicated that the initial breakup was in the pressurized area of the airplane. So in other words, it wasn't an engine, it wasn't a wing, it was in the pressurized cabin. Be it that both recorders cut out power at exactly the same time, that meant that likely the power was cut to both immediately, which would have been a failure in the pressure pressurization area. We found that ballistic analysis supported that the in-flight breakup of CI-611 initiated at the rear lower lobe of the aircraft and indicated that the engine separated at flight level 290, about 34 seconds after the initial breakup, 
and lightweight airborne debris, such as paper items, departed the aircraft at 35,000 feet, flight level 350, allowing them to be carried more than 100 kilometers to central Taiwan. And that's true. Pieces of the airplane, including safety cards and such, were found in central Taiwan by people in parks and on streets. Literally just floating from the sky. Yeah. That's morbid and horrible. It is. Could you imagine just walking your dog in a park somewhere, and then all you see coming out of the sky are safety information cards? I mean, part of it would make me laugh, because I'd be like, where the hell did this come from? But also, I would freak out and probably start crying and calling emergency services like something's happened yeah i don't yeah. know if i would cry but yeah like i found this it was floating in the park i don't know where it came from i'm assuming something happened the airline tried to justify their lack of proper inspections of the doubler of course they did right and so it is listed in the findings that they found that they're in the procedures for these inspections there is no lighting standards required for the airline during the inspection, and a magnifying glass was not required as a standard tool for the inspection either. There okay. Is, there is a whole section of this report about lighting. Like, it's pages long it about is. lighting conditions. What lighting conditions are in normal office spaces, what lighting conditions should be in inspection spaces, and all of this. Ugh. Okay, listen. To some degree, I'm like, okay, I get that. But, like, when the crack overran the doubler right it was visible to the naked eye right with or without lighting right unless they were in pitch black in the dark which if they're doing maintenance in the dark we got other problems yeah but it's hard for me to believe when the crack was so big that they would say oh we didn't have proper lighting or oh we couldn't see it without a magnifying glass when that's total bs yeah you can see it if you can see it in normal light with the naked eye, you are not doing something right. Right, they weren't doing the inspection properly. They found that a communication issue existed between China Airlines and Boeing in the 1980s during the repair of the tail strike, as there appears to be no advice given by a Boeing field representative during that time, which would have noticed the scratches on the underside of the aircraft and advised them of proper repair procedures. So... In other words, the airline and Boeing at the time, they have field representatives that are in China to help them with their aircraft. They weren't reaching out to one another to assist with this repair, and nor did they reach out to each other to assist with the inspection or the permanent repair of this at any point in time. At least there's no record of it, and it doesn't appear to have happened, so more than likely it just didn't. They found that the hidden structural failure of 611 could not be detected using a high-frequency eddy current inspection through the doubler. So in other words, there is a current inspection to check for these cracks underneath the doubler. And they determined that the high-frequency eddy current detection or system would not detect it through the doubler even if they wanted to. So it is true that the inspection wouldn't have found the, the cracks being so so bad through the doubler. But still... Other than the fact that it was Visible. expanding past the doubler. Right. So before it became past the doubler, they wouldn't have known the extent of how bad it was underneath it. I understand that. However, I think there is some sort of... No, that's not right. Just kidding. 
I was thinking of the chalk flight, because I actually watched the Air Disasters episode on that, right? And I was trying to remember if they had to remove the doubler, but I don't think they did, to check the crack. I think it just kept expanding to the point where yep. it just ended up tearing the wing off the plane. So I could understand up to a point where they'd be like, I can't see anything, it must be fine. But once the crack extended past that doubler, they knew there was a problem that needed to be fixed, and they just didn't fix it. Right. Ultimately, I get it that they wanted to argue the fact that inspection couldn't have found it, blah, blah, blah. But it's still the airline's fault. They're the ones who didn't repair it properly in the first place. Right. And then they didn't follow up on it at any point in time with proper inspections. They didn't do any sort of record keeping to make sure that it was being inspected properly. Yeah. And the auditors, the internal audits of the airline, they're literal people that are supposed to check their procedures, make sure they're following them properly, also did not catch that they weren't doing this properly. Is an all-around breakdown in maintenance communication. So don't give me excuses about lighting conditions. Right. And don't give me excuses about magnifying glasses. Are you kidding me? Or current that crack tests. was so big, you would not have needed a magnifying glass to see it. Current, that's different. Because as we talked about with UA-232, sometimes cracks are ridiculously small. And mm-hmm. even those cracks can cause catastrophic failure. However, this was that was not the case here. Right. I found the last finding point on the report to be strange and interesting. It reads verbatim. Due to the Oriental culture and lack of legal authority to request autopsy, the autopsy was conducted only on three flight crew members. For what? How was that a... They weren't allowed to do an autopsy on any of the passengers or anything because of the culture. They were they had to bury them basically immediately. Okay, as, but as they were found, they had to bury them. How did that affect the investigation? It did not, but it frustrated investigators because it was difficult to do tests or determinations. You have to remember that Oh, that's true. They did use the the remains that they could during the autopsy to determine if any chemicals, hazardous chemicals were found in the bodies from any explosives and they were not of course but they couldn't do that without remains okay well it had nothing to do with chemicals or anything i could see how that would impede the investigation to a point right um but that's kind of a weird thing to put as a finding yes but the one i think the reason that that's on there and became a particular point also in the recommendations is because they were being inundated with people who were speculating about explosions, bombs, missiles, just like on TWA-800. And because of such a a difficult, tensionous place of the world, it was a point of contention between China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. You know, is it was it somebody trying to bomb the airplane? And so without the people, it's hard to say, you know, these people... You know, it doesn't show any signs of explosives on the bodies. Well, they only had three to go on, and they were the flight crew members in the ca- in the cockpit or flight deck. I just think it's interesting. It is. To be perfectly honest, I never even thought that that was a, a thing they had to do if they suspect uh, bombs. It makes sense, though, because then you'd find, like, shrapnel and stuff. Right. Yeah, 
It's morbid to think of, but... Realizing now, I would realize... I understand why they would leave that out of, like, an air disasters episode or a documentary, because it's a little bit morbid to be like they had to do autopsies to figure out if there were explosives. I think the only time it's come up for us is when they did the autopsy on the captain of EA-401. Right. Yeah, and they found the tumor. That makes sense, though, for solely that reason. Right. So then we move on to the recommendations. The report gave recommendations that were pointed. They were pointed at five different entities. So first and foremost, they did recommendations to the airline, obviously. The recommendations to China Airlines were perform a structural repairs according to the structural repair manual or other regulatory agencies approved methods and procedures and do not deviate. Obviously, that's critical. Duh. They recommended to review and correct record-keeping systems to ensure all all activities are being tracked and make sure that they're being maintained at all times. Uh, Duh. They recommended the implementation of a repair assessment program as soon as possible. They recommended to ensure internal audits are following procedures to ensure that mistakes and maintenance are being found. They recommended to enhance maintenance crew awareness of irregular air, of the irregular aircraft shape and signs that may indicate hidden structural failures under the doublers. And they recommended to China Airlines to ensure that the airline maintenance crew reach out to the manufacturer field representatives to assist with maintenance and repair operations to ensure that they're being done properly. Yeah, because at the end of the day, right? Right. Even though... The aircraft flew so long after they did that shoddy workmanship to fix it. Eventually, it did fail, and it did kill people. Catastrophically. Yes, because, and specifically because where they covered it up. Right. If I think if it would have been on a wing or if it would have been on the middle of the f- fuselage or something, it probably wouldn't have been as bad. But because the tail section is so important in flight, right, and it completely tore off, that it just it literally killed a bunch of people. If they had just done what Boeing said to do to begin with, and even though it, the aircraft probably would have been out of service for what maybe month, month and a half, two months, right, it would have. Probably made the life of the aircraft longer. Probably. And people wouldn't have died. Right. So that was all the recommendations made to China Airlines. Then they made recommendations to the Civil Aeronautics Administration, which is China's basically FAA. They recommended a review of inspection procedures for maintenance records and to adjust to ensure that carriers are operating effectively to be certain of timeliness and completeness of con. Continued airworthiness programs. So that one's really weirdly worded. But basically they're telling the Civil Civil Aeronautics Administration to put in place a better inspection procedure for maintenance records to ensure that the carriers are doing their inspections properly. That makes sense. Double checking the double checking. Yes. They recommended to the CAA to build in uncertainty aspects to repair operations because it was found that the procedures that were given don't build in uncertainties such as the doubler being too small for the area of the crack. They don't build in the uncertainties of human work basically not accounting for certain parts of the procedures. 
the procedures really should call out better, further, and more complete instructions on how to repair these aircraft. He recommended to the CAA that they encourage operators to establish systems of managing records in order to offer a clear view to inspectors and auditors. So basically making their records a lot more organized, clear, maybe digital, easy to look up, easy to find records of airplanes so that inspectors and auditors, whether they be internal or external, can find what they're looking for. They recommended that they consider the implementation of independent power sources for flight recorders to assist in future flight occurrence investigations. So they recommended that basically the flight recorders, the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder, have their own power set up where they exist. Is that how it is now? I don't think so, actually. I don't think that this is how it's done on some. They recommended that they consider adding cabin pressure as a mandatory flight data recorder parameter because it was not recorded on this. So, in other words, they may have been able to notice any strange anomalies or, or anything going on with the pressure in the cabins, and they couldn't because there was nothing on the FDR to show them what the pressure actually was. So, that kind of requirement, is it... Like, requiring what is recorded on the flight data recorder, is that specific to airlines, to countries, to universal? Interestingly enough, they made that recommendation to both the CAA and the FAA. So, so it, would be, by country. it would be required by country. They recommended to the CAA that they closely monitor international technology development regarding more effective, non-destructive inspection devices and procedures. So in other words, better and new equipment to inspect these cracks to make sure that they're being found. But if it's created by another country, another company, that they examine that technology and determine if it should be used with their procedures. To Boeing, they recommended that they improve their relationship of field representatives with the operators in the area. They, recommend, they also recommended that they develop more effective, non-destructive inspection procedures and equipment for them. So basically, they recommended to Boeing the same thing. Basically, help us make better equipment for these inspections. They recommended to the FAA the independent power sources of the flight recorders. They recommended the cabin pressure parameter on the flight data recorder. And they recommended that they build in uncertainty and in inspections as well. To the Aviation Safety Council and the Ministry of Defense, and the Ministry of Justice, who were working with them at the time. Basically, they were working with the Aviation Safety Council as wreckage recovery and remains recovery. They recommended to them to sign an agreement to allow radar data to be used during investigations because the Ministry of Defense had radars in the area that could see aircraft, say on boats, and it may have been more useful to them during their investigation. It may have sped up the investigation and given them more information. But it was not accessible to them because there was no agreement between the Aviation Safety Council and the military to use that data. I feel like in the instance of an investigation like this, though, I understand that the radar may be picking up some like top-secret things or something like that, but right. like redact that part, you can redact parts of video right just show the relevant parts right 
So that's basically what they recommended. <laughs> this is just a shortened version of that. They basically recommended that they come to an agreement to provide that data when needed during investigations. And is that with the Chinese military, our military, any military? It was with specifically with the Ministry of Defense, which would have been China. Well, China's super secretive anyway. Yes. So. And they also recommended to set new autopsy guidelines to allow them, during an investigation of this sort, to autopsy more than just the flight crew bodies. That would be really hard in Asian culture because they have such a stigma right. about... I cannot confirm if that one has ever been put in place. <laughs> I'm guessing there's new stipulations to it, maybe, but... That is still a difficult thing. That's probably why they put it in the findings, is so they could make that recommendation. Right. That is all the recommendations. Does Chris have anything else to say? The interesting thing, though, if you think about this, is that the design and the materials were kind of, I'd say, you know, combined in such a way that this airplane struck the ground in 1980, right? Mm -hmm. And just by slapping on a plate, even improperly... It lasted 22 more years. Which is pretty impressive. That is, really I mean, is. I, I, now I understand the ultimate end result, you know, is, is very catastrophic and, you know, uh, horrible. But uh, I would say just from a, you know, I'm a materials guy, from a materials perspective, uh, you know, it, it was designed a way that, I mean, that it's still somewhat impressive. Like if you would have told me an airplane can hit the ground and then just kind of by uh, supposedly some, I'll say some sanding and I don't know the, all the procedures, but just slapping on a doubler plate on top is a suggested fix and, no, that actually should work pretty well. Now, again, they they should have maintained it. They should have inspected it and made checked for cracks. That's something that you need to do for uh, materials uh, like this. That you need to check for uh, crack propagation and, and kind of uh, I'd say nip it in the bud before it gets uh, too large and causes catastrophic failure. But but that's exactly it. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. 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 But it is somewhat kind of just uh, you know kind of amazes me that it could last twenty two years. Yeah. Uh, right. But it before is. it would hit this, it is. It's pretty amazing. So that was CI-611. We want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Y for joining us on this episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah, thanks. It was really good information. I think a good learning tool, that's for sure. Appreciate that. We'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. (laughs) Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.